Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of This Is Your Captain Speaking. Today I have on Margaret Kelsey. Margaret is the marketing advisor, but she is the founder of Tatco, which is your own organization, right? And mm -hmm. um, Margaret comes with years of experience in a number of different organizations, including OpenView and also worked at a company called First and Mentor. But First and Mentor is something that you're working on at the moment and have been working on for a while, correct? That's in collaboration with Northeastern to be the First and Mentor for their early entrepreneur startups. Got it. Got it. Also more experience across Envision app. Um, AppQ has been a bit of a focus on brand and creative as well as PLG. So product growth. And uh, over the past couple of years, you started your own company, as we mentioned before, in Tatco, which is going and uh, advising companies on how to be better at marketing, basically, and how to how to build scalable, effective marketing programs. So, so tell us a little bit about that. Let's start with that journey in terms of starting your own business. How was that? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Um, so I left OpenView a little bit more than a year ago with this idea that I was going to try to see if I could build a business just advising and working with founders and heads of marketing at B2B startups to help them with marketing strategy. It's the thing that I felt most impactful when I was at OpenView. Uh, most of my work at OpenView was marketing the firm itself and not doing advisor work for our, our portfolio and prospect companies. But when I got the opportunities to do some of those calls, those were definitely where my heart was, was bringing me. So have left a little bit more than a year ago and have had over the last um, 13 or so months, probably nine or 10 clients. Most people stay with me for about six to eight months, but I don't lock people into contracts. It's month to month. And I advise on everything from building a marketing strategy, thinking about the machine instead of the tactics, analyzing to make sure that the, the team has the appropriate level of talent and that we're uh, building plans and resources uh, to actually make um, strides against the marketing strategy that we've put in place. And so it's been a lot of fun and um, I can't imagine doing anything else. When do companies normally come to you? So anytime that there's a transition and their go-to-market motion, I'm really comfortable from building zero to one and one to scale. Once it gets to like past scale and you're just tweaking efficiency, I'm kind of bored. So I would say after a series C, I'm probably less helpful. Um, but everything from building a, a V1 coming out of stealth mode all the way up to series C. But interestingly enough, I'm seeing more and more companies that have been bootstrapped historically um, and maybe are raised a little bit of growth funding from a PE firm or from some other. Um, angels and they're ready to kind of turn on the engine. And so usually it's in that sort of transition where they have something that's up and running, but they have funding or, or they're at an inflection point where they're ready to really invest in marketing and build that growth machine. That's interesting. Seeing those companies that are ready to invest in marketing that haven't, as you said, received any VC funding is interesting, but especially interesting nowadays because everybody's going towards profitability, right? So those companies are seeing like unicorns so when i first started my career in tech like 12 years ago whatever it is now it was all about burn 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 yeah. <laughs> doesn't matter it doesn't matter how much you spend as long as you get new logos on the wall and now it's more like oh don't burn any cash like let's grow efficiently like 30 percent year on year growth is acceptable anything yeah. that's not 100 percent like before it was anything that's less than 100 percent growth is oh god you're failing miserably right i guess you're also seeing that as a knock-on effect in terms of how you're working right yeah, I think 
it's very interesting to see how the overall the industry has shifted to your point over the last 12 years, the last decade. And I, I completely agree with you. I think it used to be all about growth at all costs. Um, and now the companies that have survived the last couple years, they were actually the ones that were growing really efficiently, that bootstrapped, that found product market fit super early and didn't grow beyond their means. And I think that marketing motion actually looks a lot different too. A lot of the bootstrap companies that I'm seeing early on invested in community programs and word of mouth programs and affiliate programs, they really understood this virality and tapping into how human beings talk to one another to communicate rather than how to just spend a lot of money on, let's say, broadcasting ads or trying to force people through a demand gen function. And so what I've seen is that these these companies actually have invested in their marketing programs, their zero to one marketing programs much differently and have a much more solid foundation. Um, on which to build now this growth machine. What's typically when you come into those organizations that have been bootstrapped, for example, or have just received some private equity, what are the programs that you're looking to put in place immediately? Let's say we're starting with very little, right? There's maybe yeah. a handful of marketers. They're probably all chasing their tails a little bit. You have founders that are trying to push them around. The founders like, why isn't this working? This thing that I told you to do that I don't really know much about. What is your playbook when you come in from day one in that case? Oh, so you've met those founders still. <laughs> I, I think I, every founder I've just described, right? In, in yep. I don't think I've ever met a founder that's not that way, right? It's normal. Yeah, I think it's tough. And I think it, the, the thing that's tough about that is that uh, the marketing tactics are so visible by their very nature. We're like the tactical application of marketing. Everyone can see it. And so um, if you think that that's what marketing is and, and have never learned that there, there's a strategy or a machine behind it, I think it's easy to fall into. So what I normally do is I go in and I try to align with the founder on what marketing is, take away all the buzzwords. What are we trying to do here with marketing? And essentially it's two functions. The first is, can we saturate channels that our target audience already lives in with a message that resonates frequently and consistently? And so it's not even about conversion yet. Some people call this brand, but again, I want to get away from buzzwords because if I say brand, some people think arts and crafts, some people think logo. So it's really channel saturation. And the goal there is to build awareness and affinity with your brand. And that happens by repetition, right? So it has to be a message that resonates and it has to be frequently and consistently in the channels that your target audience already lives in. The second piece of marketing is, can we identify signals of readiness? And can we get that person to do the thing that we want them to do? If it's a PLG motion, can we get them frictionlessly into the product? If it's a sales led motion, can we get them to respond to our BDR's email? So that second piece is a different type of marketing, right? It's this conversion piece of marketing. And we can always debate over within separate organizations, what's the right level of investment in these two functions, but marketing essentially should own both of them. And both of them are important in order to build a actually effective marketing program. And I think that first piece, now that I'm to your point of bootstrapped companies, I, it used to be that I'm going into VC backed companies and I'm trying to get them to understand that first piece of just channel saturation and resonance and I go into bootstrap companies and they've usually built that piece and they don't have the signal identification and conversion piece in play. And so it's like almost like bootstrap companies have built that saturation piece. VC companies had overly built that identification and, and conversion piece. And the happy medium is, is that you have some blend of both. Got it. I think on the bootstrap companies and the channel saturation, I think they've probably 
they've managed to get some level of channel saturation, but there are normally others that are operating in the same space that probably have received VC funding that are the monsters within the space that have complete channel saturation. And they're trying to take away that little bit. Do you have a playbook to try to go in for in that example with the bootstrap that's trying to get that channel saturation, but there are major players in the market. A simple example is if you're talking about in the marketing automation space, right? You're going to have Salesforce Marketing Cloud and you're going to have Oracle and Adobe in there. And then you're going to have 500 rulers that are competing within the mid-market space. And some of those within that mid-market space have received little funding, no funding, quite a a substantial amount of funding as well. They're also trying to compete in that mid-market space. For those ones that have been bootstrapped and operating in in a space like that, they're trying to gain that saturation. How do you start them on the way? I like the idea of the channel saturation, but how can yeah. they move from this sort of, they've maybe done some, or they, they're a bit like sometimes a mom and pop shop that offers a really good service. That's a local store that you're happy to go shop at, but you go two towns down and nobody's ever heard of them, right? So how do you bring that across when you don't have a huge amount of cash to do it? Yeah, I think it's um, identifying a channel that, your competitors are not in. I like to think of marketing programs as products themselves, and there has to be product market fit for your marketing program, specifically for your content programs, right? And so if we're thinking about um, building a program where you're going to saturate a channel and you find a message that resonates, the easiest thing to do is go do an audit of every place that your target audience consumes information and lives in, and then go do an audit of what actually other people are doing and your competitors and the channels that they're actually using find a place that's a little bit less saturated or not saturated at all and build there first. Um, And build there first in a way that um, is offering your target audience something that doesn't exist yet in the world, something helpful, something useful, um, something novel. And that's the way to easily break it apart. Your way in, I guess. Yeah, I fully agree with that. So I was sort of a loaded question as well for myself because I've worked extensively in that space as well. And things like we used to do direct, one of the companies that I, worked full-time at in the past and we did like direct mail drops but we spent a lot of time and effort and thinking through what that direct mail drop will be we're not just sending all some old plastic shit to somebody we're actually we're doing things that are well thought out and it's almost like an attack on our competitors it was at a time when nobody else in the market was doing it and actually we managed to win some deals off the back of that with larger brands that were working with those monsters but we managed to get our foot in the door a little bit because we were being a bit more creative I think yeah. creativity is is the winner for that because the bigger cloud guys, et cetera, they're never going to be as creative and scrappy as, as the bootstrap smaller organizations, never going to be aligned. The bureaucracy will kill the creativity. And so you have that uh, in your favor to have a smaller team. So we did something similar at Envision where early days we were um, kind of c- trying to directly compete with Adobe. So we were friendly with Adobe for like a couple years. And then we started to kind of take some direct shots at Adobe. And so much so that um, when Adobe Max, which was their conference, I don't know if it still is their conference, was happening in LA, um, we did a total takeover of the LAX airport um, with Envision branding for that weekend, knowing that everyone was going to fly in to that airport. And then everyone was going to be able to walk through and see Envision on their way to the conference. Um, And then we did geo advertising around the conference itself. So anytime somebody opened up their phone um, on social media or on in Google, they would see and we knew it was just those people that then would see Envision. And so that's what I mean is like, understanding what your target audience and where they're going and how they move through the world gives you an opportunity to saturate channels much more 
efficiently than let's say buying a Super Bowl ad or something like that, where you're just trying to get in front of as many people as possible, which is expensive, right? Um, I mean, I'm sure the takeover of, of LAX was expensive as well, but it was so much more targeted. And we understood that 90% of people going to Adobe Max were actually going to be flying in. That's not a real stat, but you know what I mean? Most of the people are actually going to be yeah. walking through yeah. that airport and would be able to see it. Nice. I was going to ask you how much you spent on that. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't my budget at that point. I was too low at that point to, to have that come out of my budget. That's a super awesome idea. It's a really great idea, though. I fully, fully agree. Okay, let's go. Let's change pace onto something else just a little bit, because you've mentioned as well that you, you like to see a la an overlap between internal culture and external brand, right? I, I also understand that, but I think it's also very hard to get across what's important to a team internally and how that translates into the outside world in terms of how people see your brand, right? There are certain elements that come across in terms of when you have touch points with somebody from an organization and you can see that they're clearly happy and you see there's a certain ethos within the organization. But it's hard to bottle that and get that out across that channel saturation as an example, right? It's, it's, it's hard to do that. So yeah. let's dig into that a little bit. Something that uh, you mentioned is your pet project. So yeah. tell me a little bit about that. I think this is really interesting and, and it definitely has to come when I've seen it most successful, it comes from a founder, right? A founder is absolutely obsessed with the problem that they're solving and who they're solving it for. Um, but the, the best way that I see this and I like to think about it is values as shared decision making framework and the values within your organization are values that you can use to make decisions on who to hire how to set up marketing programs, what to prioritize, um, and even what to bring into the world in terms of brand programs. And so when I think of all of those things as one, it's not that the talent team has some uh, values that they like to hire on, and then the culture team has some that they like to talk about, and then the brand team has some that they talked about, and then your audience and your customer base have different values, right? Ideally, all of those are the same, and that's what creates that sense of belongingness and affinity with your target audience is the fact that like your target audience would actually probably want to hang out with the people that work at your company because there's this shared value framework, right? Um, and so I oftentimes try to think about like how to make things more simple, how to make things more streamlined. And I do think that this is a place where if you set up one kind of set of operating rules around shared values, everything gets easier, right? Everyone knows that we would make similar decisions in a similar scenario because we value the same things. Um, and so you also know that everyone that's at your company likely is showing up in, in the same way, right? And I think that's especially important right now as there's so many more people that are investing in their own personal brands that have more access to bigger audiences than ever before on social media, that it could be that your social media marketer or your intern that you just hired in actually has a huge platform that they're able to talk to a lot of people. And the more that you can make sure that the uh, way that you're hiring in and the way that you're uh, making decisions internally are around the same values, the more likely you are to not get into some sort of PR brand crisis, right? Because you know that they're probably going to operate from that same set of values. So you think it's founders, which is normal. So typically I would say, either founder or CEO or C-suite yep. led when it comes to setting the values right of the organization, because yep. they're the ones that are going to be ultimately the ones that are going to roll it out. Now, there's nothing worse as well than values being set out across an organization and the C-suite don't care less about them and they do whatever. Yeah, they, they never do. mention them again or they don't, yeah. they don't mention They've them. They've got in... their values. 
Yeah, exactly. They've got their values and the company has its values. Or they're so distilled down to nothingness that they don't matter. That's the other thing I've seen with values is they're so bland. They're so absolutely bland that they could never possibly turn off anyone. And that means that they're not effective, right? Because if we're going to say that we value speed, right, that essentially will negate some people to work at the organization, some people that want to have a slower pace of life or a slower pace of whatever. And so I think the best thing that you can do is make sure that those values aren't too filtered. Also, I would say as well, one thing that springs to mind when we're talking about this is also don't make them too cookie cutter. Yeah. There's nothing worse than our main, one of our core values is we love our customers. I was like, no, like, are you going to hate your customers? Like we're focused on tomorrow. Like building a better future. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean when it's so distilled down that it's absolute nothingness. It's just not useful at all. And actually, um, I think that's where a lot of just even marketing truth lies is the more that you can strengthen your marketing magnet, it makes your programs so much more attractive to the right audience, but it will also probably repel the wrong audience, right? Like I know there's some people that think liquid death is the stupidest product on earth, but they're killing it because it works for their target audience, right? They've made a bold decision and they've doubled down. And I think the more that you can do that is actually where you find the place of winning. But I know that it's most human beings desires to want to be loved by everyone. And so it's a hard thing to do in practice to say, we're going to specifically set these values, knowing that it's going to piss off some people that may never work at our company because they're not going to actually be aligned to this way of thinking. And maybe some customers will never buy from us because they actually value different things. Ideally, most of your customers value the same things that you do, but you have to draw a line somewhere and, and not be for somebody in order to then have an attractive enough offering that people feel that sense of belonging, the ones that are part of it. And just for our European listeners that may not know what it is, it's canned water, basically. And they've marketed with like a rough and, and, you know, attitude. It's a like canned water yeah. with an attitude. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's water, but they've done such good brand work there. And also the people that they work with as well, they've just started leaning on influencers, leaning on comedians, leaning on edgy people, I would say, people that are polarized generally anyway by their fan base or people that either love them or hate them or they're maybe not going to go and sponsor them, right? But that's how they've managed to get out there and they've just basically blown up over the past two or three years, I would say. And it's canned water, to your point. It's an absolute commodity, absolute commodity. But people have an affinity to it now. It it becomes part of their signaling to the outside world. And I think working in B2B SaaS, it was always really interesting to me to be able to do that for business software. It makes so much sense that the clothes we wear and the drinks we drink and the the car we drive signal to the outside world something about ourselves. That makes a lot of sense to me. But the fact that you can do that with business software too, where if you were bringing this software into your business, into your company, it means something about you. It means that you're more creative. It means that you're an early adopter. It means that you're smart. It means that you're really judicious. It means that you're um, thrifty and don't want to spend a lot of the the company's money. So you found a, a lower cost solution. Like we signal in the workplace the same way that we signal in the consumer space at the end of the day we shop 
shop in B2B like we shop in B2C almost as well. Yeah. You're still dealing with people's emotional connections to different things at the end of the day. When the final decision's made, of course, it, in B2B software, you're probably talking about a buying committee of 10 people, depending on the size of the software. If it's a software investment, there could also be procurement, et cetera, involved. But at the end of the day, you're still selling to people here. And uh, I think if you're able to create a connection, and that's why it's always important when you're going with that sales-led approach that you've got good sellers that are able to see eye to eye with whoever they're selling to and really understand or at least give the feeling that you really understand the problem that they're trying to solve. <laughs> and some sellers are really good at that. You're more likely to win those deals. And yeah. that's why people make decisions. It's it's emotion plays, plays a role here as well, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, the logical brain, like, of course, you're going to have your feature set and you're going to have it a grid against your other competitors and your blah, blah, blah. Of course, you need the logical part to make sense. Um, but I think that's where a lot of uh, companies miss is to tap into the emotionality of the human experience. And um, it, it's difficult because it doesn't get put in a spreadsheet, right? It's so easy to say this is our ROI per channel because you can just drop that into a spreadsheet. It's very hard to say this is our ROI per emotional message, right? And this emotional message is actually resonating more in every channel because we've tracked it that way. And I do think that there's a piece of that where it's um, the easy things get tracked and then we focus on the things that are being measured rather than the holistic nature of, of marketing. I fully agree. And that's a whole other conversation when it comes to dark funnel and all of that stuff where it's so many things happen in marketing that are just not possibly possible to track. And my yep. advice is always... If it makes sense, if it gets more eyeballs on what you guys do and it gets your message out more to be your message before around channel saturation, then do it. But you won't be able to you won't be able to explain to finance that this is directly leading to a specific piece of business because that's what they're going to be looking for. But as long as you've got buy in to yep. say, if it makes sense, do it like use common sense when it comes to these things. More eyeballs is good. If it gets more eyeballs in your in your buyer persona list that you're looking to target do it. Well, and that's why I've specifically tried to speak and split those things off from one another, because I do think absolutely let's track conversions. Let's make sure that we're increasingly um, becoming more efficient with our spend across that conversion pathway. But you do have to also invest in that channel saturation piece. And again, we can we can have lots of conversations of whether it's 25% channel saturation, 75% investment in conversion. Uh, we can have a lot of conversations there, but if you want to spend no money on channel saturation, then what you're doing essentially is increasing the cost of the conversion pathway, right? The more channel saturation, the more brand affinity that you have, the more brand awareness actually decreases that conversion pathway, the cost of that, and, and even the speed in which that can happen. It increases the speed when you have more affinity and awareness in the market. So again, that's how I always start the conversations. Let's remove all the marketing jargon. Let's fully align that these are the two things that marketing should be doing. And then let's obviously with finance about around the split of the budget, but there will be different ways to measure channel saturation. Um, and we're not going to measure it on conversion yet, right? And eventually we can measure this conversion pathway. And eventually we can even measure if we increase the spend in channel saturation, are we actually decreasing the cost of conversions and increasing the time to conversion and all of those good things? Once we've set up enough uh, of a marketing machine that we can establish that we can play and even show the ROI of investing in that channel saturation. But at, at least at the beginning, I won't work with a founder who's uninterested and in, in at least acknowledging that there are those two bits and that we should measure them differently and we should fund them differently. Then you're basing yourself on something which is very fragile 
And that's <laughs> a conversation for another day entirely. I've been there. Yeah. Patience with founders, patience with CEOs can be can be tough. There's plenty of things you can do to mitigate that. You've mentioned some of them. But unfortunately, our time has run out. So I'd love to have you on again where we could chew the fat a little bit more around that. But uh, Margaret, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and having a chat. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you and also to hear from your past, et cetera. So thanks again. Likewise. Yeah, this was really fun. We could chat forever. Good that we have time boxed it in and wrap it up, but happy to be on again. Perfect. Thanks, Margaret. Guys, this has been another episode of This Is Your Captain Speaking. We'll make sure that all of Margaret's uh, details are in the bio and the description so people can find you on LinkedIn and where to find your which website, et cetera. Again, Margaret, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And yeah, guys, tune in again next week for more content.